0: You're listening to TIP.
1: This little business that I have, it can generate cash flow pretty predictably, but I don't want to reinvest it back in this business. I wish that I had multiple other businesses where I could reinvest this capital because that would be the best thing for me to do as a capital allocator. And this was the first time that my brain went from, I'm an operational CEO to, I'm actually a capital allocator. And my job is not only to make sure that the business is running properly, that the trains are running on time, and that we're profitable, but my job is to figure out, once we have that profit, what is the best thing to do with that each incremental dollar? And I think it unlocks something in my head. Hey guys, in today's
2: episode, I got to sit down with Sieva Kaczynski to do a deep dive into his entrepreneurial career and his journey to building his holding company, Enduring Ventures. You'll learn about Sieva's early adventures in entrepreneurship, the inspiration Berkshire Hathaway provided, the importance of partnering with the right people, and a whole lot more. Sieva is an entrepreneur and co-founder of Enduring Ventures, which is a long-term holding company dedicated to buying and building beautiful businesses and stewarding them with exceptional values-driven leadership. This was an interview that I felt like I could have gone all day talking with Sieva and learning from him. I hope you guys enjoy this one as much as I did. And without further delay, let's dive into today's episode with Sieva Kozinski.
1: You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network. Since 2014,
2: we interviewed successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Now for your host, Patrick Donnelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host today, Patrick Donnelly, and joining me today is Sieva Kaczynski. Sieva, welcome to the show. Hey, Patrick. Great to be here. I'm really happy to have you on here today. I want to just jump right in and talk about your early days. I know your mom immigrated from Russia when you were a little baby. And I wanted to hear about that. I mentioned I've got several Russian friends here where I live in Columbus, Ohio. And they're all incredibly entrepreneurial. I wanted to just talk a little bit about your experience coming to the US. Obviously, you're a baby, but I wanted to hear a little bit about what your family did and just like this entrepreneurial gene that I feel like a lot of Russian immigrants have.
1: Absolutely. I, I think the short of it is my engine is an outcome of my mother's and my grandmother's experience. They had a very hard life in communist Russia for many, many years. They are Jews, uh, which you couldn't really be there, so they suppressed their kind of religion. And you know, they grew up in whatever way they knew how there. They went to school, they got jobs, but there was a lot of opportunities that just weren't available to them. And you couldn't even really leave the country you could travel to a few of the neighboring countries, but you were always under watch. They wouldn't let you leave with more than like $50 in your pocket. They wouldn't let you take most of your family if you wanted to travel. So when the Soviet Union fell in the early 90s, my grandmother came to the US. And at the time, you had to go through either Israel or Italy, and you could go to one of those countries as kind of a stopover point to get to the US because there was a There was like a refugee program. They're offering asylum for Jews from the Soviet Union. My grandmother spent time in Italy living a little in a little tiny studio all by herself. She didn't speak Italian. She didn't speak English. But eventually she got selected for the lottery to come to the US. And she had a friend who who lived near San Francisco. So it was kind of the only place she knew in the US. She flew there and she started building a little life for herself and saving money so that she could bring my mother over and myself. And if you just imagine when my mother came over, she was 21 years old. I was one. She didn't speak the language. Uh, she'd never planned on coming to the, to the US. And she left behind you know, a career. She left behind her husband. She left behind all her friends in order to create a better life for me. Right. That was really where the decision stemmed from. She had already gone through her medical school in Russia. So she was getting ready to be a doctor and she had a good life. You know, for her, she kind of made it through. She didn't really see any obstacles, but she knew that I would never have the opportunities that I would have in the Soviet Union or in Russia at the time that as I would in the US. So she moved for me. And I think a lot about their, you know, I think I do think a lot about their experience. And I think it just like keeps me moving. It keeps me hung- humble. It keeps me hungry for sure in a way that, you know, some people that maybe don't have that story and don't have that close family experience um, may not.
2: My friends have a similar story. Both their parents were professionals, doctor, dentist. And once they came to the US, you know, that obviously goes away. That's really hard. You're, what did your mom do after like getting to San Francisco,
1: you said? Yeah, she came to San Francisco. So my grandmother was working two jobs at the time. She was working in a restaurant, and she was working a front desk job at a hospital. So she was also in healthcare in Russia. But once you come over to the US, you lose all of your accreditation. So she had to start over, and she was working on getting certified as a, a, like a lung therapist. My mother came over, and because she couldn't be a doctor here, and she didn't want to go through the seven-year medical school program, she found a dental school program that gave you one year of credit if you had medical experience in a different country. So, she came over with her experience, and she did a two-year dental school program. My grandmother watched me during the day when she went to school, and then they would kind of trade off in the afternoons. And she became a dentist. And that's, that's actually how she met my stepdad as well, was in dental school. Fascinating.
2: So, uh, did you have an entrepreneurial did did you have side hustles as a kid as you were growing up did you do any i don't know mow lawns or anything like that when did the
1: entrepreneurial gene kick in for you you know i never really thought of entrepreneurship until later in life and if i look back i can probably trace the dots and say yeah i had some entrepreneurial energy you know i was thinking kind of creatively i was tinkering around i was always looking for ways to make money but Both my parents were not entrepreneurs. They came from the Soviet Union where everybody worked for the government. So there was never this idea of, hey, you can start a business, you can own your own business, you can grow it. The only concept that my parents really knew was be a doctor, be an engineer, be a lawyer, and work for someone else. And as long as you could get a good degree and a good education, things were going to work out. I really didn't... Learn about this idea of entrepreneurship until college. I was actually studying pre med for a couple of years and I thought I wanted to be a doctor or a veterinarian. I wasn't sure. But some of the classes just really weren't doing it for me. I was doing fine, but I just wasn't having fun. I wasn't enjoying it. And that led me to start thinking about other careers for the first time. So I took a class in the entrepreneurship department at my school just because a friend had recommended it to me. And it was taught by a guy named John Greathouse, who is this incredible entrepreneur. He's built a couple of different businesses. He started one of the first companies that was doing like robotic arms and healthcare. And then he started another company, which was doing WebEx effectively. It was called, uh, they sold a business to Citrix online called go to meeting and go to my PC. So he taught this class at my college at UC Santa Barbara. And it was the first kind of practical learning class that I'd ever taken. Everything else at UC Santa Barbara is research-based, research-focused, and highly academic. So you don't really learn practical skills. You learn a lot of theory, which as like a red-blooded entrepreneur now, that used to drive me nuts. So maybe that, that was one indicator was I just couldn't handle the research theoretical subs. But this was the first class that was practical. It was hands-on. And he really encouraged you to think of real-life business solutions. He gave you the skills on how to do it. And then he pushed you to, to start that business or participate in the business plan competition, which I did. So that was the first opportunity where I had my eyes open to business. He would invite his friends over who were also entrepreneurs and they would talk about their kind of feats and their journeys and their stories of starting a company, raising capital, building something, hiring people that they wanted to hire. And I just got super fired up about it. I remember I would sit in the front of the class, which I never did. I took a bunch of notes. I got a great grade in that class. And that kind of set me off onto this entrepreneurial journey of tinkering with businesses. And it led me to start my first education business, first software education business, which is, that must have been my sophomore year of of college. So was that
2: part of this entrepreneurial competition that you did in this class or was that totally separate? Was that study soup? Because I know you started a company Study soup. I don't know if that is what you're referring to, but
1: I want to hear a little bit about study soup for sure. My sophomore year, as I was kind of opening my mind to this idea of starting your own business, the teacher's advice was basically work on something that you know and you understand. And at the time, I'm a sophomore in college, so I didn't understand a lot of things. You know, maybe my world was a few very simple things, right? It was family, it was music, it was school and parties. And sports as well. I started just trying to solve my own problem, and one of the problems that I noticed at the time was I was living off campus, and I was biking to campus with all of my like textbooks and my laptop. It was so heavy because I had to carry it around all day. I didn't want to leave campus because I lived so far. I lived so far away from class, and I started thinking, you know, why aren't all of my materials? Why can't I access all of my materials and all of my textbooks directly on my laptop? This is before there were e-books. This is before everything was accessed online. Now now we're in a different world. But at the time, as you can imagine, I was carrying like three textbooks, notebooks, and my big old laptop. This was really the first idea. And I went to a buddy of mine who was a software engineer. And I said, hey, I don't know anything about building a software company, but will you help me build the software? And then I'll go sell it to university professors. I'll sell it to the school. And we'll we'll create this course delivery solution for people's ebooks, for their readings, for their class notes. And at first we called it studiously and we went about selling this software and it was incredibly hard. Most universities do not want to buy a rinky dink software from two guys, you know, working on it in the attic of their door, basically, which is what we were. So we worked on that for a year and a half. We got a little bit of progress, but it was like pushing a boulder uphill is incredibly hard. And then we decided to pivot the business. We said, hey, let's stay in education, but what other solution can we provide to students? And we came up with this idea of helping students sell their class notes directly on our website. We noticed that people are sharing notes, people are selling, sharing study guides, people are helping each other study in school. How can we bring that online? How can we get people paid for participating in that behavior? And that's what StudySuit became. And the fun thing was that as soon as we pivoted we got to finally see what good product market fit looked like because the business just took off instead of pushing a boulder uphill students were coming to us and sales were happening pretty easily and in the first 6 months i think we made more money than we had ever made in the first
2: business were you just at uc santa barbara or were you at other campuses as well
1: did you try to did you grow yeah so right out the gate we knew we wanted to grow so instead of testing it at uc santa barbara only the first semester, we tried at UC Santa Barbara, University of Oregon, and University of Washington. It's kind of funny to think back on these days, man. I remember those two schools or those three schools being very important parts of our business. So we knew we wanted to grow, and we knew that if we made it work at UC Santa Barbara, you know, we may consider it a fluke. Obviously, I had a bunch of connections, and a bunch of friends there. So we wanted to see: can we launch campuses remotely? And we did. And all three of those campuses for us were very successful. And when I say very successful, it was you know, to the tune of, tens of high tens of thousands, maybe $100,000 a year. So after that first semester, we thought to ourselves, this seems pretty simple. If we just run this playbook over and over, and I still remember there's 4,000 colleges and universities nationwide. And there's, I think there's maybe like two to four hundred of them that are considered like large public state schools, similar to the ones that we started with. And we said to ourselves, "Great, like you know, we're making a few hundred thousand dollar. We're making about let's say a hundred thousand dollars a piece here. If we go do this at ten campuses, we'll be making a billion dollars a year. If we do this at hundred campuses, we'll make ten million dollars a year. And this sounds like a great business. This sounds like a great opportunity. We raised a little bit of money from angels, which was incredibly hard." Um, this was our, you know, this was our first business. We're like twenty-two year olds. We're going around San Francisco, meeting with angel investors and DCs, and I got a lot of people who slammed the door in my face. Some very kindly, some not so kindly. But after hundreds of conversations—and it really was hundreds of conversations—I was able to raise a little bit of money to test out this this thesis of ours. And we worked on growing that business from three schools to fifteen schools, and then to one hundred and fifty schools. And between three to 15 schools, it worked fine, like our, our thesis held, it grew nicely. But going from 15 schools to 150 schools, things started to fall apart for us. The unit economics changed because we noticed that different schools behaved differently. Some cared about school, some didn't care about school. Some schools were big, some schools were small, some schools were easy to advertise to and others were hard to advertise to. We kind of got lucky and we caught lightning in the bottle for the first 15 schools, but things started to really slow down after 15 schools. And eventually that business hit kind of a a plateau. We got to a few, maybe like three and a half million dollars of revenue. We were not profitable. We were burning a lot of money trying to grow and grow big and grow fast. We were, we were excited about that venture growth mindset. And eventually, we realized, man, this this business is not going to grow. Maybe don't grow to five million, but it's not going to grow to fifty million. And we should slow down. We should slow down our spending to become a profitable company, because otherwise, we're just going to shoot off a cliff and and not have money to pay for payroll. And that's when we kind of had a come to Jesus moment. You know, we realized that our original plan was not the one that we set out to. Our new plan was really not the one that we set out to pursue. We were no longer going to be on this venture growth strategy. And, and we dialed everything back. I promoted my COO and made him CEO. And, and I, I tasked him with making the company profitable. And he did that. And it, that business is still around today, um, which is maybe like 12 years later, which is surprising to me. I haven't been involved with it for eight years. So I can't take any of that credit, but they're still running a kind of small, profitable business.
0: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. this is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show.
2: That's awesome. So when you decided to go whole hog into it and and grow, had you already graduated at that point or were you still still taking classes and still in university?
1: Yeah, I had graduated already. I was working at a restaurant at night. So I would work on my startup during the day between like 7 a.m. and 6 p.m. or so, uh, maybe 5 p.m. And then I would go to work at a local restaurant and I would work the night shift. I would work the dinner shift between 6 p.m. and like midnight. And I would do the same thing over and over again. So the the waiter job, the restaurant job gave me the cash that I needed to pay for rent, which wasn't expensive. I was living with roommates at the time. And uh, the startup was the opportunity that I was really investing in. But it was a great learning experience. You know, I think the real takeaway there is there's a lot of young people who get caught up in the excitement of venture capital, the excitement of growing a business fast, you know, tech crunch was kind of at its peak when I was 21 years old and people were announcing big funding rounds and people were getting celebrated for growing really fast and getting their company sold. That was the information and kind of the environment that I was in. And I thought to myself, you know, I can do that. I'm going to do that with my current business, but I never stopped to really consider and think to myself, hey, maybe this business isn't supposed to be a venture capital backed business. Maybe this isn't going to be the next Airbnb. Maybe I should just grow a nice, profitable business. I can own the vast majority of it. I can distribute cash flow to myself and my business partner. And then I can use that cash to go start other businesses, invest in real estate. That never once crossed my mind. And it was really just the lack of, kind of experience, a lack of knowledge, And nowadays, when I get approached by young entrepreneurs, young people starting businesses, I really encourage them to first consider starting a profitable business, maybe a good service business, or something that'll just generate cash flow for your lives. It gives you an opportunity to learn good business hygiene. You know, how do I read a financial statement? How do I understand what gross profit, gross margin means, which I really didn't know at the time of starting my business. But Pushing a profitable business, growing a profitable business really forces you to do that, right? Because if you don't have venture capital or angel money in your bank account, you have to think very carefully, where's every single dollar going for? What's my cash conversion cycle? How long does it take me to get money from my accounts receivables? How long does it take me to pay my bills? And once you learn those things, let's say you build a nice cash flowing business. If you want to go pursue a fast growth, big venture capital swing. Feel free to do that, but you're now doing so with kind of better hygiene, better fundamentals than than I did when I started.
2: That's good advice. I love that. I wanted to take a little step back. At a certain point, you ended up in San Francisco, and you were sharing an apartment or sharing something with Sam Parr. I wanted to hear about the like that experience of working with Sam Parr at the Hustle. I think you guys were working on separate things, but you had day to day contact. It sounded like, and at one point, Tim Ferriss showed up. And I, I just think all of this is fascinating. So I wanted to hear a little bit about those experiences in San Francisco.
1: Yeah, sure. So that's a, that's a long time ago now. And Sam is, is a good friend of mine. Let's see. I was working in San Francisco at a little tiny office by myself on my startup at the time. And I was subscribed to Startup Digest, which I would imagine they're still around, but it was a weekly newsletter about startup news. And I received the weekly calendar. They used to share events. And it basically said, Hey, today, Monday night, there's a book club meeting, business book club meeting, hosted by a guy named Sam Parr." And I'm a book nerd. I love business books. I love autobiographies. I've read hundreds of them. And I thought to myself, you know what? I don't have a lot of friends here in San Francisco right now. I I certainly don't have a lot of friends working on startups. So I'm going to go to this event and See what it's like. Maybe I'll make some friends. Maybe I'll just find some peers who can encourage me to read interesting books and keep me accountable. I went, I showed up. It was, I remember it was on the border of Chinatown and uh, Little Italy, there, uh, which is North Beach. And I showed up. It was in this like dingy little tiny bar. It was very dark and there was like kind of like neon lights around. I couldn't really see what was going on. So I went, went, through the, went down this hallway. And at the end of it, there was a small group of people. I want to say there's like seven people there. And I see this guy, this pretty tall guy standing there. He's wearing cowboy boots and a button-down shirt. And he comes up and he shakes my hand and he says, hey, I'm Sam Parr. How are you? He's incredibly gregarious and charismatic. I probably would have left if he hadn't greeted me because it was like so dingy, and weird, and there weren't a lot of people there. And I was like, what did I get myself into? I got to get out of here. But basically, what Sam did is he hosted this event once a week. There's a book chosen every month, and he used this book club as an opportunity to meet interesting people, to bring in speakers to come and talk to us, and talk about their books, and just to build out his his network and stay accountable around reading. Um, and I thought it was a great idea. You know, there there are many people that kind of like floated in and out, but Sam and I became very close, as well as a couple other people in that group, and and that's what really kicked off our relationship. So. Years later, maybe like a year later, I had gotten an office in the sunset. I was sharing an office with a couple other guys. And it looked like a little apartment building, but it was actually the old office building of Craig Newmark Craigslist. He had spent 12 years in that office building. So he would really started the business there. It was just him and a friend. And then little by little, they grew and they took, took over this whole kind of two-story apartment in the sunset right off of Judo. I moved into that office. I started sharing it with a couple of friends. Eventually, they moved out, and I reached out to Sam and I said, "Hey, you know, we we have space in our office. I know you're starting the hustle, which was a, a media company at the time. Do you want to come share this office?" And he moved in with me. Another group moved in with us, and they eventually moved out. But Sam and I stayed. And little by little, he grew the hustle, and I worked on StudySoup, um, and we we became closer over that time period. You asked about Tim Ferris, so so Tim Ferris became an investor in the hustle and he showed up in the office one day and this is pretty early in tim's journey uh, you know as a kind of content creator as being like a kind of media mogul
2: before w- would this have been before
1: the 4 hour work week came out or right around that time it was right after the 4 it was right after the 4 hour work week came out so obviously the 4 hour work week was a bestseller so, so he was famous for that but he didn't really, you know, he wasn't as big on his podcast just yet, which I think is kind of his biggest platform now, and his email newsletter as well, which I think now has millions of subscribers. So he came into the office and I was just kind of lurking around. You know, I wanted to meet Tim. I'd read the four-hour work week. I was, I was fanboying. And he was talking to Sam, and I was there just kind of listening in. You know, he he shared like a few interesting lessons because Sam was obviously in the early stages of building his media company. And he wanted to hear from Tim. Hey, Tim, like what did you learn building your company? Where's the value, and where do the economics really accrue for these types of media companies? And Tim shared something interesting that I had not really considered in the past, because I assumed Tim is selling the four-hour work week. He's making a bunch of money on his books. That's what's really going to make him famous. So he's going to spend his whole life making books and making money off of those books. But what he actually shared in that office is he said, look... I make some money off of these books that are bestsellers, but I don't make a lot of money off of it. My long-term game is to build up my own audience. His game was really to build up his podcast and his newsletter. And he said, "Look, the media does not want to talk about my podcast or my newsletter. They don't care about it. But they do want to talk about my books, so I'll get invited to do an interview with. Yahoo Finance, for example, and they want to hear about the four-hour work week. And I'll plug my podcast, I'll plug my newsletter. And his book process, his book writing process was really the top of the funnel for his podcast and his newsletter. And I think at the time he had maybe one employee or two employees running the podcast, selling ads, managing all of the operations. So you can imagine if you can run a media business with millions of subscribers. With one or two employees, you can have a really profitable company. And for me, that really set off a few different light bulbs. One is it imparted the kind of importance of owning your brand and really having an owned audience. And then two, it really opened my eyes to book writing, right? I never considered writing writing a book, but all of a sudden, I I thought to myself, you know, if it's good enough for Tim and Tim is using it to build his reputation and build his credibility maybe I should write a book." And actually, I am now finally, many, many years later, this is like 10 years ago now, I am now finally in the process of writing my book with a business that we bought called Scribe Media, which is a, a hybrid book publisher that's helping me publish my book.
2: I want to get into that. I interviewed Eric Jorgensen, who took over as CEO of Scribe. So I, I definitely want to get into Scribe later. But before we do that, I know that you're a big Buffett and Munger fan. You read Snowball and I wanted to, it's probably a book that maybe you and Sam Parr read in the book study group, maybe, but I wanted to get into like some of your lessons from Buffett, Munger, Snowball in particular. And I also wanted to touch on Rick Guerin and kind of the idea of, and you talked about the idea of anti-luck. Let's just get into a little bit about the lessons you've learned from Buffett, Munger, and you now have a holding company that's a baby Berkshire Hathaway.
1: Yeah. There's so many lessons to share. So I'll think a little bit about where we can start. I read Snowball, which is a book by Alice Schroeder about Warren Buffett. I must have read that book in 2015. In 2015, I was spending a lot of time in India because we were hiring a lot of staff there for my study suit company, both engineers and academics. And I had a lot of time on my I had a lot of time on my hands. I didn't have any friends there, so I was really just working and reading. And I read Snowball and one of the things that stood out to me was that Warren had this holding company called Berkshire Hathaway. And the way it worked for him is he had a few different businesses that all generated cash flow and he could take money from all of those businesses and pull it up to the holding company and reinvest in the best growth opportunities. Sometimes that meant new businesses. Sometimes that meant these current growth businesses. And right around 2015, I was starting to think of StudySoup. I was starting to see kind of the writing on the wall for, for StudySoup. Maybe this was actually 2014 now that I think about it. But I was, I was seeing that StudySoup had gone from Doubling or tripling in size year over year. And all of a sudden we hit a ceiling and the business was still growing, but it was growing at like 10 or 15% per year. It was no longer kind of requiring, uh, or it was no longer requiring the type of investment that we were making into it previously. So I'm looking at Warren Buffett's situation and he has multiple businesses where he can reinvest capital however he sees fit. And then I'm looking at my situation and I'm thinking to myself, man, like, This little business that I have, it can generate cash flow pretty predictably. But I don't want to reinvest it back in this business. I wish that I had multiple other businesses where I could reinvest this capital because that would be the best thing for me to do as a capital allocator." And this was the first time that my brain went from I'm an operational CEO to I'm actually a capital allocator. And my job is not only to make sure that the business is running properly, that the trains are running on time, and that we're profitable, but my job is to figure out once we have that profit, what is the best thing to do with that incre- each incremental dollar? And I think it unlocks something in my head that I was able to access many years later when I did decide to start Enduring Ventures, uh, which is largely inspired by Snowball, largely inspired by Warren Buffett. But it really started my me thinking. Like Things didn't change for me immediately, but I do remember going through that thought process while reading Snowball.
2: Let's get into Rick Guerin. First of all, I'll let you describe who he is. And then
1: some, I know you've ta- had a lot of lessons from him as well. Yeah, it's a really interesting story. I think one of my favorite takeaways from the Berkshire Hathaway journey has been the focus on incremental growth. And patience. And I'm not naturally a patient person. You know, I can be fairly impatient. People say I have a a pretty relaxed and chill demeanor, which I think is helpful of what I do. But at times I can be fairly impatient. and, And I think that reading about the growth of Berkshire Hathaway, reading the letters that Warren published over the years, has really taught me to take my time, not to try to accelerate the desire to make a lot of money today. Because I think that's how most humans are wired. You know, if we look at incentive plans, if we look at the public stock market and we think about, okay, there's reporting schedules every quarter and executives are incentivized around stock price and they're incentivized around that reporting cycle. So our entire economy downstream is incredibly short term minded. People are trying to squeeze the most profits in the short term in order to benefit personally. So nobody's acting maliciously, but their personal incentives are tied to these quick growth schemes, basically. And we see the same thing in private equity. So private equity makes a lot of money by purchasing a business with as much leverage as they can and flipping it two, three, four years later for a profit. The more leverage they can apply, the more profit they're gonna, uh, the more like proceeds they're gonna get personally, because of the way promote structures work. So Warren Buffett is like a light amongst the darkness. He writes about this idea of growing slowly, limiting the amount of leverage you apply to things, really trying to grow in a way that is indestructible and is defensible because the markets are going to grow, the markets are going to crash. That is the only thing that's predictable, right? You can't predict the future. You can't predict how the market's going to go, but you can predict that there will always be recessions in the future. There will always be downturns. Uh, similar to like, what we're experiencing in, in the office market today, right? Nobody could have expected the Fed raising interest rates so much and cities getting wiped out, places like San Francisco, where it was considered grade A style commercial real estate is now you know, 50 60% vacant. We can't predict what's going to happen, but we can predict that something is going to happen. And that's probably a key learning that I took from those guys is really grow slowly, Don't over leverage things. Don't ever put your holding company at risk of failure, right? Even if it means you have to grow a little bit slower, even if it means you have to delay gratification or delay wealth till later on, as long as you continue making good decisions and not losing money for yourself and your investors, eventually things are going to work out for everyone. And that brings us to rigurance. So you know, when I talk to people, everybody, of course, knows Charlie Munger, who passed away this year. And Warren Buffett. They are the two kind of heads and the figures that led Berkshire Hathaway for the last 60 years. Now, Rick Gurren was the third partner of Berkshire Hathaway. And it's a really interesting story. So, Rick first started working with Charlie Munger in his partnership because Warren was over here running Berkshire Hathaway. And Charlie had his own partnership early on. And Rick and Charlie would do deals together. And One day, Rick discovered blue chip stamps. Basically, blue chip stamps, what they were doing is when you would go to the grocery store, you would receive these little like coupons or like gift cards, and you could add up these tokens and eventually you could cash them out for money, for gift cards, for prizes. So, blue chip stamps was the purveyor. They were the one that supplied the stamps that people collected. And what Rick found was that this business had a, I think it was like a 50 or 70% redemption rate. But they were required to keep all of this cash on their balance sheet as a liability, even though they knew a large percentage of it people would never redeem. They'd been around for many, many years. So they knew what the pattern was. They knew how much of that was actually true cash as opposed to a liability. They had it all listed as a liability because that's what you're required to do with, with things like gift cards and prizes and future prizes. He also noticed that they had like $100 million in public securities. So they were stockpiling cash and investing in bonds and securities. Um, but the stock was trading at something like 60 or 70. The, the market cap of the company at the time was like $60 million. So they have all of this cash on their balance sheet that they're holding back and they're marking as a liability. And they have all of this money in securities and he can buy this. He can now buy this business or so 50% of this business for like 30, $35 million. Little by little, him and Charlie bought into this business. And once they did, well, once they got to above a majority, they were able to control the balance sheet of the company. So they spent 30, $35 million to control something like $100 million of capital for this business. And then they, they, and, and they got Warren to invest alongside of them as well into this strategy. And then they used the capital from Blue Chip Stamps to invest in a few states, few of what became like pretty standout companies for them. They invested in one insurance company. Then they invested in the Buffalo the Buffalo newspaper, which they funded for years out of blue chip stamps, which eventually became a business that was generating somewhere between 30 to $50 million per year of free cash flow for them. And then they sold it for around $500 million. And then they also invested in Seize Candies. And everybody knows about Seize Candies, but at the time, they, they paid, I think, $25 million. They paid... Like $30 million for the newspaper. They paid $25 million for Seize Candies. They put in $30 million into this insurance company. And Seize Candies became a juggernaut for them. That business to date has produced about $2 billion of cash flow for them over the years, which is just incredible, right? They, these guys paid $25 million for a business that has generated $2 billion of cash for Berkshire. This was all Rick's idea, right? He found this. He's an incredible investor, really smart guy. And eventually they agreed to merge the two partnerships. So Rick ends up with something like 5% uh, Berkshire Hathaway. Charlie ends up with something like 10 to 15, 10% maybe at the time. And Warren ends up with the vast majority of it. I don't know if there's a, those are exact numbers there, but they're, they're within a few percentage points, I'm sure. Now 17, uh, 1972 rolls around. And Rick Gurin is highly levered on his stock portfolio. And towards the end of 1972, there is a stock crash. 1972, 1973, there's a stock crash. And because Rick is levered on his portfolio, he gets margin called, which means he has to liquidate most of his portfolio in order to pay down the leverage that he's, that he was taking. So he ends up selling... His shares back to Ward Buffett for something like $43 a share. All of them get liquidated and sold to Warren. Today, you know, if you fast forward the clock, I think Berkshire's trading at over half a million dollars a share and his piece of the portfolio would have been worth somewhere like seven, seven billion dollars. What's the lesson there? The lesson is really, you know, and, and, and actually, Warren got asked about Rick Gurren just a few years ago in an interview. They said, Hey, you know, you guys used to have a third partner named Rick in the early 70s. What, what happened to him? And Warren shared this incredible lesson. He, he basically says, Rick Gurren was just as smart as Charlie and I. He's an incredible investor, but Rick was in a hurry and he had these loans out on his portfolio. He was in a hurry to get rich. That's why he had these loans out. He wanted to get maximum leverage to get maximum returns. So when he got margin called and he's had to sell all of his shares back to Warren, he lost everything. And that really is the lesson, right? Like you can be an incredibly smart investor. You can be incredibly hardworking, but if you have a systemic risk in your portfolio, which is usually too much debt, um, it can take you down. So my takeaway is, you know, take your time, never apply systemic risk to your holdings. You can use leverage. Thoughtfully. You know, for us, we have zero leverage at our holding company. But occasionally when we buy a business, we'll use a little bit of debt at those businesses, right? Because we think to ourselves, we're going to do whatever it takes to protect those businesses. But if a few things go wrong and it doesn't work out, we don't want to harm our greater portfolio of businesses.
0: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
2: Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing.
0: This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math.
2: The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. That's netsuite.com slash MI.
0: All right, back to the show.
2: That brings me to my next question. We're talking about Warren and Charlie. I wanted to get into your business partner and the importance of picking the right business partner. So talk about Xavier, if you would, and then whether or not, if somebody's listening to this and they're considering starting a company, whether or not they should pick a partner or go it alone. I wanted to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, it's a complicated question. So Xavier is an incredible entrepreneur that I met probably 10 years ago now. I was working on my little business, my little stunning suit business. And I got invited to a conference for entrepreneurs in Utah. It was an invite-only event. There was 150 people. I got lucky. My friend's dad is a well-known angel investor. He said, Hey, you're getting started in business. Why don't you come to this conference? I certainly didn't belong there amongst the people that were there. I was kind of the bottom of the total pole as far as entrepreneurs are concerned. That was Summit? Summit Series. Yeah, exactly. So I went there and I showed up and I'm sitting in the house where I'm spending the weekend talking to some of the people who I'm sharing with. And This guy comes in with long hair. He's wearing a suit. Uh, He just flew in from Africa. His name is Xavier, and you know, over the course of the weekend, we become friendly. We get dinner together. We ski together. We 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 have a really we had a really nice time. You know, we always joke that we met in a hot tub because because we went hot tubbing that day. But yeah, so he. What I learned about him is that he's an entrepreneur. He's built a couple of businesses. He built one of the largest book retailers on the internet called Better World Books, which he sold um they were processing millions of books per year and then he started this company in Africa called Zola Electric or Off-Grid Electric at the time and basically what they were doing is they were lighting the homes of millions of people that were off the grid using solar really really cool stuff and they had like built this like off-grid decentralized grid technology just really really impressive guy really impressive company and we became friends i used to host this founder's dinner in San Francisco with a guy named Sean Puri, who's Sam Parr's co-host now on My First Million. And we used to host this thing called Junto, uh, where once a month or once every two weeks, we would get together with uh, interesting CEOs, people that were building cool companies. And it was really our way to get close with people that were kind of further than us in their career who had built cool things and wanted to meet other interesting entrepreneurs. So we would meet once a month, and Xavier, I invited Xavier after that weekend. You know, I thought to myself, wow, this guy's great. He's super kind. He's an incredible entrepreneur. I love the way he thinks. I want to be closer with him. So I invited him to this event that we had in San Francisco. And he started attending. He became a regular with a few other guys that I'm close friends with today. And then many years later, when he had hired a CEO at his company and decided he was going to go pursue a new project he reached out to me and we started talking and he said, yeah, let's, let's definitely work on something together. And this idea for doing a holding company came about, uh, which frankly he came up with, and that's how we got started. Your question was, you know, should everybody have a business partner? And do I recommend having a business partner? Xavier is an incredible business partner. I could have not accomplished everything that we've accomplished today without him. There's no way. He's really, really special. But I don't recommend business partners for everyone. Xavier and I knew each other for many years, right? I knew how he thought. I knew kind of what made him tick. I knew what got him frustrated. I knew how he behaved in difficult situations because we were meeting and talking about these very intimate elements of each other's businesses. So by the time we worked together, I knew that he was someone that was incredibly fair, that he was kind, he was very hardworking. He thought in very unique ways. And that was a good basis for our relationship. That was a good basis for my partnership. The challenge with most founders is that I see is that you know, somebody meets somebody in college or business school, or you know, they're maybe co-workers for a few months together, and they decide to start a business together. And they said, you know, I need a co-founder because they're scared and, and they need someone's help, which is reasonable. And they pick this kind of semi-random person that they're friendly with. The challenge is like, you are basically married to your co-founder. You know, you are spending, you are oftentimes spending more time together than you are with your own spouse. You should really approach it in the same way that you would in selecting your spouse. And you would never spend a few out. you know, most people, most people, I can't say never, because some people do, but most people won't spend, you know, a few days together and immediately propose and decide to have children together immediately. And that's what you're doing when you're picking a founder that, you know, you maybe had a couple classes with or you've known for a few months. In those scenarios, what I recommend people do is they re- play it slow. Don't make any commitments to be co- be co-founders with this person. Maybe they're great, maybe they're not great, but you need more information. So the best thing for you to do, if you can, is to start the business yourself get things going, get the momentum moving, talk to this person that you're considering working with, suggest that you guys work together in an unofficial capacity for the first six months to get to know each other. You know, If they need a bit of pay, maybe you can pay them as a consultant. And then only after you've known each other for six months and you've worked together on projects, then you can talk about being co-founders or partners in the business. I love the idea of the
2: Junto too that you mentioned earlier. That's a page out of uh, Ben Franklin's playbook,
1: I think, right? Didn't he have something similar? That yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, his version of Junto was not just focused on ch- entrepreneurs. He was bringing in entrepreneurs like industrialists and also local politicians to talk about what was going on with the kind of with society and, the, and 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 their town. But yeah, that's the idea. It's a similar idea.
2: You and Xavier Connect, you create Enduring Ventures. Talk to me a little bit about the portfolio. I want to get into Scribe. I think that was a pretty recent acquisition, last three months or so, four months, I think. Talk to me a little bit what the portfolio looks like today, and then I'll I'll go
1: from there. So today we own a portfolio of about 20 businesses. We've started a few small companies, but the majority of what we do is we acquire cash flowing businesses from Um, owners. From the people who started them. So I guess our world is really split into two. On one side, we're buying good, stable, cash flowing businesses at kind of three to six times earnings. And on the other side, we have distressed or distressed technology businesses that are, they could be profitable, but they have a bad balance sheet or they're not profitable and they, but they have good revenues and they have good product. They just need to be made profitable. On the value side of the business, on the cash flow side of the business, we own companies in swimming pool construction, plumbing, HVAC. Uh, we have an auditing and accounting product for retailers um, and a few other businesses as well. On the distress side of the business, we have acquired a couple of businesses that were venture-backed, that had raised anywhere between 30 to $60 million. They'd gotten to, you know, $10-plus plus million of revenue, but they were not profitable. They were both not profitable and they were not growing fast enough to be considered the next Uber or Airbnb. Um, so they're kind of in this in-between space where it's hard for them to raise venture capital, further venture capital, but it also doesn't make sense for them to shut down. And in th- those cases, we'll come in, we'll buy the business, we'll take it over, our team will parachute in and turn that business profitable. For example, we bought one of our first acquisitions is a company called UpCouncil.com, um, which we turned profitable, and, and another company called Abstract.com, which we run profitably today. And you asked about Scribe. So Scribe kind of straddles both of those categories. Scribe was once a very profitable business that hit some hard times. And for context, Scribe is a hybrid, modern book publishing company. So what that means is if you want to publish a book Patrick and you don't want to self-publish, you want a really high quality, good looking book that ha- that's been edited by top editors, you want to get it out into the world and really be proud of it, you could use scribe to do so. And they could even they'll even provide a ghostwriter that'll write in your t- in your voice. So they'll do everything for you end to end, everything from Helping you figure out what is the exact idea that's going to be compelling for your audience, helping you actually write the book, edit the book, create the design for the product, and then produce it into the world. So they've actually done the book. They've actually published the books of over two thousand people now. These people are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. They're coaches. They're lawyers. They're accountants. Anybody who's looking to build their credibility and put out a high quality product, high quality, their voice into the world. Because a book is like one of these things that it lives on forever, first of all, but also it's a constant sales tool. You know, so for example, like I went to a conference two weeks ago, one of the gentlemen there handed me a book, and now that book is on my living room table. So I've forgotten most people that I met at that conference, but I know who he is, and I know what he does, and I know what his business is. So it's this incredible, like, perpetual sales tool for business professionals. On the other side, there's customers. There's like famous, famous uh, influencers, famous writers like David Goggins, who wrote "Can't Hurt Me" and sold over five million copies using Scribe. Nicholas Nassim Nicholas Taleb, Chris Voss, and, and many others. And the reason they use Scribe is because if you work with a traditional publisher, that publisher will keep eighty percent of your weddings. of your winnings. But these guys already have an audience and a reputation. So by using Scribe, they get to control their full IP and they get 100% of the upside. So David Goggins, for example, made many, many millions of dollars more by using Scribe and putting his book out into the world using Scribe. So that's kind of the story of what Scribe is. I'm happy to talk a little bit about the acquisition if, if you'd like as well.
2: Well, I just interviewed Eric Jorgensen and he's the CEO now of the company. He wrote one of my favorite books actually, which is The Almanac of uh, Naval Ravikant. I love that book. You guys produced it. Just came out with uh, one on Balaji. And then it sounds like you also have plans to write a book, and I'm sure you'll use Scribe. So I actually wanted to get into your idea for your book and some of the thoughts that you have on it. Have you started writing it?
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, I don't want to give all the juicy details away just yet, but I can share what I'm thinking about and kind of what gets me interested in the world. And that will guide what the book is going to be about. I write a weekly newsletter called the business academy, uh, which you can find at sievakosinski.com, just my first last name.com. And the things that I write about are really investing topics, lessons learned in business. And then I do profiles of what I think are interesting holding companies or interesting businesses. So, my day to day is learning as much as I can from other investors, from other company owners, talking to private company founders, public company founders, and really understanding what has led to the success of the business, what makes their business tick, and building up my internal repository, really sharpening my tool set as an investor so that I can become better and sharper at identifying what is the difference between a good business, a bad business, an outstanding business. And everything we've done so far with Enduring Ventures, everything that I've done so far building my businesses has compounded and led to this. The intent of the book is to be a synthesis of some of those lessons through the eyes of some of the businesses that I also have explored, right? Can I teach... I use this as a way to teach as many people as possible to become better at identifying great businesses, to become better at running good businesses, to become better investors, etc.
2: You're a great writer. I mean, I've connected with you on Twitter. I love your Twitter tweets, <laughs> X whatever it is now. Talk to me a little bit about the actual what Twitter has done for your career. And a little bit about just like your creative process in terms of writing and just creating really great content on a consistent basis. It's not easy to do.
1: Yeah. Twitter has completely changed my career and the trajectory of our company. It's been incredible. And it's, you know, for people that don't understand or don't participate, I think it's hard to grasp, right? Twitter seems like a silly tool and like Elon gets a bunch of bad press around it. People are like, what are you doing there? Why are you wasting your time posting and sharing information? And I can share some of the success that I've had and I, and I will hear in a moment. But for me, it really like started to be to share content and share my learnings with through Twitter, through LinkedIn, through my newsletter was really inspired by other great investors. The way I live my life is I think to myself, where do I want to go? Who do I want to become? And and try to learn as much as possible about them and then pattern my life around them. Because these are people that have been doing it for 50 years, right? They've, tr- they've tried and tested different methods that work, that didn't work. And there's a reason that 50 years later, they're doing certain things. So for the last 50 years, Warren Buffett has written an incredibly detailed, thoughtful and thorough newsletter to the public. He doesn't write it in financial terms. You know, he's not writing it for analysts. He's writing it for people like me, people like my sister, people like my friends, who can read his writing and learn as much as they can. And if you think to yourself, why is he doing that? Why is Howard Marks producing a podcast? Why is Bill Ackman all over Twitter? These guys are world-class investors, and they are world-class content creators. So at some point in their journey, they determine... That being a content creator, building an audience is beneficial and gives them an edge in what they're doing, and it's absolutely true. If you think about if you've got a big business that does hundred million, deep it down, a family business, and you want to sell it to someone, who's the first person you're going to call? You're going to call Warren Buffett, right? And that is an incredible advantage. That's an incredible price advantage because you know you could call any private equity firm, you could call, could call any strategic but he's always going to get the first call because he has spent the time and the energy building his reputation through content. So that's what really inspired me to get started. And that's what really what's encouraged me to keep going. Even though at times it feels like, you know, what am I doing? Why am I posting on Twitter? Why am I posting on LinkedIn? Aside from that, I get a huge kick out of people reaching out to me and saying, hey, like, you really inspired me to take the jump and start a company, or you really inspired me to go out and buy my business. I learned so much by following your journey. And I love that. I get a lot of joy from that. For me, creating content has led to a lot of unique opportunities. It has brought businesses our way for investment. For example, like Scribe came through Twitter from Eric, actually. And if I hadn't been posting on Twitter, there's no way he would have known who I was. Um, We've raised a lot of capital. Through those channels, we've never posted to say, "Hey, you should you should send us your money. And you should invest with us." But people see what we're talking about, and they reach out proactively and they say, "Hey, I, I like what you're talking about. I want to invest with you." You know, so it's been and it's really been an incredible tool. And as we grow, and as our audience grows, and as our experience set gets better, all of this compounds. I have more people who know what we're doing than I did when I had ten thousand followers. And we have more experience as investors. We have more capital to deploy. And if we just keep going and we keep growing along those different vectors, I think good things will continue to happen. So I highly recommend it to anyone who's thinking about uh, building an audience. You
2: mentioned a little bit about the idea of cloning and just basically copying the playbooks of people that have already been doing this for 30, 40, 50 years in the case of like Buffett and Munger. I know you're a big fan of Manish Prabrai. And did a, did a thread recently on the Patels, who own, a, I think, over 50% of the hotels, motels in the US. He's got this idea of heads I win, tails I don't lose too much. Is that a concept that you guys do when you're buying and acquiring businesses? And I'm curious how Monish has affected your thought process in investing.
1: Yeah. The Dando Investor, which, which is the book you're referencing, is an incredible book. In it, it talks about the Patels, which is, they're not family members. Uh, it's a group of people who all come from, I think it's called the Gujarat, or I don't know how to say, a region of India. And many of the people, let's say most of them, are named the Patels and are named Patels. I think the last name is used as a signifier of what region your are from. Basically, what happened is, I think like 60 years ago... The first Patel gentleman came to the U.S. and bought a motel. And he used a combination of personal equity and debt to buy his first motel. And he lived in that motel with his family. His wife did the cleaning. He handled the business operations at the front desk. His kids would handle the front desk when he couldn't. And by, he was, because his family was running it, he was able to operate the lowest cost motel, With the highest profit margin relative to their peers, which meant that more often than not, his his motel was filled. Eventually, he paid off his debt, and he went and he bought another motel. And and he he bought another motel. And when he bought the other motel, he realized, okay, now his family can't run it. So he needed his cousins or his friends uh, from his hometown to come run it. So he invited his buddies from India, and he said, Hey, I'm going to buy this motel. I need you to run it. If you run it for a while, and you help me pay off some of the debts. I will fund you to go buy another motel yourself. So it became this daisy chain reaction of this group of people, or kind of this group from this one region in the world that built incredible wealth in the U.S. through motels and hotels. They own something like a trillion dollars worth of real estate in the U.S. And I went to a hotel conference called the Asian American Hotel Association recently, and ninety nine percent of the people in that room were Indian Americans. I was, you know, one of the few tall white guys in there, and I met a lot of people, Link Patels. It's a thing, you know, it's a real thing. So, anyways, in the book, he talk, the Down to Investor. He talks about this storyline, how this group of people came to this country with very little to no money, and through sweat, effort. A bit of smartly placed debt, we're able to build lasting personal wealth. And and very specifically, you know, he said, "Look, like to buy a hotel, you could invest eighty thousand dollars. You could take an SBA loan for the other, let's say, nine hundred and twenty thousand dollars. So now you own a million dollar hotel. That million dollar hotel, if you bought it at a ten cap, let's say, was was producing hundred thousand dollars a year of profit. Now you're running it with your family." So maybe you're making 150 or 200 thousand, let's say 200 thousand dollars a year in profit. So you're quickly pay, you know. So maybe in five years you can pay off 100 percent of the debt, or a little bit slower if you want. Now you outright owe to a hotel that's creating 200 thousand dollars of cash flow for you. That's a lot of money for somebody that has no American degree, probably very little English, and is now cash flowing this sum of money and owns a property that's worth a million dollars. So the, the real focus there is small... Where can you make thoughtful investments where the downside is limited, but if you are successful, uh, the upside is transformative to your life? And it's very much how we think about our business, right? We don't want to risk our full capital base on any individual investment. And when we're looking at individual investment, we're really thinking to ourselves, okay, our downside is, of course, the cash that we put in. But our upside is X, Y, Z, right? Where can this business grow? What is the brand value of this business? What are the cash flow distributions? And we're really looking for cash on cash returns of you know, 20 plus percent. So yes, very, you know, very much so. Modish has inspired how we think about our business.
2: Yeah, I love it. I love that guy. He's got some great talks that he's done on YouTube that I highly recommend, along with the Dondo Investor. Definitely worth checking out. There's so much more I'd like to ask you, but we are out of time, unfortunately. Is there anything that we didn't discuss that you wanted to touch on at all?
1: You know, I think this has been a great interview. You, you asked a lot of thoughtful, interesting questions. Um, said, so we've covered a lot of ground. I would just say this, you know, for people listening, the lower middle market of acquisitions has unlimited opportunities. There's so many small to medium-sized businesses out there. And because of the large volume of opportunities out there, you're going to find what I call mispriced gems, right? It's much harder to find a mispriced gem in the public markets because you have tens of thousands of investors looking every day for, for opportunities. Everybody has all of the information. You also have bonds and you have mutual funds. You have all of these things that are, that are fighting for good prices in the public markets. But at this scale, there's not a lot of buyers. There's a lot of sellers, and people are starting to retire at a higher rate as the baby boomer generation retires. So building a skill set and building experience in the lower middle market is you know, not, certainly not easy. It's going to be full of challenges ahead. But if you can figure it out, it's an incredible way to invest and to get good returns as an investor.
2: Yeah, it's such a good point. We'll have to wait till your book comes out to learn more about it, but I'm looking forward to that. What's the best way for our listeners to find out about you and get in touch?
1: Just my first and last name. It's unique uh, enough that it's easy to find anywhere you, you go. Um, I'm always the first Google search for Twitter and LinkedIn, um, and, and you can sign up to my newsletter. Thank you so much, Patrick.
2: Yeah. Thanks, Eva. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you. This has
1: been great. Okay, folks, that's all I had for
2: today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here real soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by The Investor's Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investor's Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.